Hello, I'm Trevor, and on behalf of myself, Lauren, and Leo, welcome to the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 232. This time around, you are hanging out with phenomenal writer, actor, producer, Simon Barrett, and actor, entrepreneur, and media personality, Inanna Sarkis. At time of release, Simon's directorial debut, Seance, is in theaters on demand and digital now. Take a seat around our Seance table. For a masterclass in script writing from the talent that brought you films like this one, your next, the guest, and more. We'll explore this new movie's unique sonic immersion, visual style, and characters. Also, geek out for the return of the Dark Castle Entertainment banner, who brought you faves like Ghost Ship, Gothica, and the remakes of 13 Ghosts and House on Haunted Hill. Join hands for episode 232 with Simon Barrett and Inanna Sarkis, starting now. light keeps flickering. It must be the ghost again. Some girl supposedly killed herself in the dorms years ago. I'm not sure I believe it. What if I told you there's a way we can find out? So you're gonna do a seance? Spiritus Oratio Nostra. Oporte Loquantur Intervos. Go ahead, screen. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio are two vibrant and influential creators. Both have had profound impact on pop culture. She cultivated and nurtured an online following into becoming one of the world's most recognized and prolific YouTube and Instagram personalities. She's been featured in Forbes, Paper Magazine, has worked on creating and starring in many campaigns, including for the WWE and 20th Century Fox, Victor and Rolf and Aston Martin. Last year, she founded a groundbreaking streetwear brand called Visus. She has written and directed a ton of short films, including Waiting for Him and Jailbird. She started projects like Boo 2, A Medea Halloween, 2019's four-time award-winning After, Netflix's Bruise Brothers, the award-winning The Left Right Game podcast, as she continues to evolve across all platforms, creating an empire that seeks to inspire others to do the same. Also here with us, a multi-award-winning writer, actor, and producer whose unique voice has been immortalized in some of the best thriller and horror features of our lifetime. 2010's A Horrible Way to Die, the inventive slasher classic, Your Next, VHS and VHS 2. He wrote The Guest, 2016's Blair Witch. He has such an incredibly beautiful attack with his stories, steeped in reverence for cinema and ripe with imagination. The new film is Seance. Six friends at the Edelwein Academy for Girls attempt to summon the spirit of a former student who allegedly haunts its halls. It's in theaters on demand and digital on May 21st. We are honored to welcome one of its stars, Inanna Sarkis, and its writer-director, Simon Barrett. Yeah! yeah. Oh, thank you for having us. That was great, because we're doing this on Zoom, so I was able to watch Inanna just get, like, uncomfortable as you, like, 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 therapy, like, and, then, and, like, and, then, and then she was able to watch, like, me get kind of quiet and awkward as you, like, like therapy. Right, right. What do you yeah. do? What do you do? 
Congrats on the film. It's absolutely fantastic. So we just want to start it off nice and easy by getting into your own personal histories with the horror genre by finding out about the very first time you remember being exposed to it. It could be through film, literature, even music, and how it made you feel. And we will start with Inanna. I think my first time was watching The Ring or, or Grudge, one of those two. Oh, no, I think it was Blair Witch Project. Actually, no, it was Blair Witch Project. And I was in Bulgaria in my grandparents' house in this tiny little TV. It was playing. Um, It was the only movie they had available. And it was me, my brother and my cousin. Actually, I'll never forget this. And mind you, my grandparents' house is already like creepy. Like it's like an old like they have never renovated it. It was like around during communism. Like it's like an old house. And I remember going to the bathroom and being freaked out because I heard a sound and I just like could not go to sleep for like at least a week. I was so scared. So I think that's why I've been traumatized and not wanting to watch horror movies. <laughs> but but um, yeah, the Bear Witch and then the Grudge and the Ring. Those were like my three main experiences and having nightmares. Those are pretty intense first experiences. How about you, Simon? <laughs> Well, I mean, so that's like cool though, because those are all like actually genuinely scary movies that still like if you watch them now are scary. The first time I, and I'm 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 quite a bit older than Anana, so it's a different generation of cinema. The first movie that truly terrified me was the Disney cartoon version of The Jungle Book. I don't remember this. I was five or six, but apparently when they started singing The Bare Necessities, I started screaming in pure terror and would not stop screaming. I was continued screaming in the lobby, and I was like. Not a baby, but I was so horrified by like, I just hadn't really seen a movie before. Yeah. And I was so freaked out and horrified. And then the next movie that I remember really traumatizing me because my parents were like, you're not going to see another movie again for a long time. That was like really sucked um, for us because we just wanted to fucking watch The Jungle Book. (laughs) Um, I I think I had a similar experience with E.T., which to this day, I consider E.T. a very disturbing and unsettling film. Uh, as 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 it, as should most people, but uh, the the first like horror movie that really terrified me was Ghostbusters. Yeah, I mean, I was just that age. I was a little kid. All my friends were seeing Ghostbusters. It was the coolest new movie. I was like young. I was way too. I mean, that opening scene in Ghostbusters with the librarian and the books floating out and stuff. I I like like just became so instantly petrified with fear that I like couldn't vocalize my desire to leave the theater. And, uh, you know, and then, and that was it. I mean, I'm sure before that, like there were ghost stories and things, uh, you know, like, like that I was aware of Scooby-Doo or something, but, uh, but Ghostbusters is the first like horror adjacent movie. I remember being like truly scared by it. I think my brother, <laughs> the reason I was exposed to horror films for such a, from such a young age is my brother loves them and he's six years, oh, older, there you go. six years older than me. So I was watching them them before I should have probably watched them. And that's why I'm like traumatized now. And I'm like, I don't want to watch them anymore. Like, don't bring them around me, please. Right. Yeah. Well, that can have both that effects, right? That's it either steers you off or that's what makes you become like a massive fan. Cause it's that forbidden yeah. fruit kind of thing, you know? I just had a, you know, going back to Ghostbusters for a quick sec, I had a huge debate with a bunch of people recently that people were saying Ghostbusters is not a horror film. And I was arguing with them that no, as much as it is a comedy film, it takes its horror very seriously when it introduces those elements. Would you agree? Yes. I mean, yeah, it's a bunch of different genres. I mean, Dan Aykroyd and, you know, I mean, like, I, I feel like the approach to Ghostbusters, it's such a weird, unique film. Um, you know, that, that you, it, it is one of those movies that you look back on it and you're like, wow, it's, 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 it, it became such a kind of cultural touchstone 
that it's unusual to go back to the original movie and realize how strange the film is and how many di- different genres it combines and also how uh, how the villains are the EPA. It's like a very strange movie. Right. Um, but uh, but but like, but yes, the horror in it is totally legit. I think I think when they were making Ghostbusters, I think they were just on a, a like kind of almost the seance wavelength of like, all right, this seems going to be funny and this seems going to be scary. And uh, we have no like, you know, we're not necessarily going to worry about bridging that gap. Like, we just think both things are good. Not to compare <laughs> seance with Ghostbusters unduly, because I think uh, I think they might have very different <laughs> legacies and reception. But it is that kind of thing where you realize they were just they were just doing whatever genre they felt like doing whenever they felt like doing it. And it just resulted in kind of a magical movie. Inanna, one of the first forays into the genre you had on camera was with Are You Afraid of the Dark? Canadian classic television show, right? Oh my God, I don't even remember that. Really? that like, <laughs> at all. I didn't <laughs> know about this. Books. I, I, actually, I actually read those books and um, they were scary. And I, I, yeah, I don't even remember that experience. That's what's the crazy thing. Like, I'm like, what did I? I don't even know what character I played, to be honest. That's so that funny. That? <laughs> that's kind of how I, that's kind of how I feel about seance, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> like, where, what happened? Where was my mind that whole time? Was I like yeah. in another place. <laughs> so when you were a kid, you were in uh, Are You Afraid of the Dark? Yeah. Like, I, I, okay. I, I, I got to track that down. That was great. <laughs> like, please don't. It's got to be on YouTube somewhere. Yeah, it's probably like the smallest. I, like, I think I had like one line or something. I was just like, did you see that? Like, I don't even remember what it was. Like, it was, I was so young. I don't even remember what, it. Do you know what episode it was? I thought it was in 2000. Yeah, I forget which episode. Because, yeah, you grew up on that show. Oh, too, I right? love that show. Yeah, that yeah. show was so, so good. That was kind of after my time. Yes. Yeah, I was like, I was, I was like that, that, sh- I kind of missed that whole like, like Nickelodeon horror era just cause I was, I was older than that then. And, and so I, I've only kind of discovered the, like that show recently, uh, as people have started doing like vaporwave cuts of it and stuff like that. Well, let's, let's get into seance. So, I mean, Simon, you've been a big part of the coolest and most interesting horror movies and thrillers of the decade. So tell us about your gateway into the script for seance. Was it uh, the middle of the movie? Was it the end? What were the elements of the film that first came into your head when you start writing it? I always write my endings first. Um, if I'm not being, if, if I'm working, uh, I guess what people say like on spec or whatever, but I've, I've never in my entire career sold a script. So <laughs> I, I either tend to write because people are paying me to write, in which case I do it the way they tell me to do it, in which case I might have to deliver an outline or treatment or whatever, because um, they want to know what I'm going to write, or I'm just writing stuff on my own. And when I write stuff on my own, I tend to like to try to be very guided by the characters. And I think the way I try to do that is I don't outline or, or do the note card thing if I'm just writing something original, but I try to think of what I want the ending to be first. For multiple reasons. One, I just think movies with good endings feel like good movies. Um, and you know, a good movie with a bad ending kind of leaves you with a bad feeling, but a bad movie with a good ending, like the James Woods film Cop is my go-to example. You kind of come out of the theater with a smile on your face. Like, oh, they, they, they landed it. You know, they landed, they landed the last, the last few minutes. So I always, I always want to know what my last few minutes are going to be. And then I, so I write that and then I just create a little space in my final draft document. And I just start with the first scene. But I always kind of have the ending visually in front of me. I always know what I'm working towards. And, and if a scene isn't getting me there, then I can just cut it. And, and so, and sometimes I'll like think of a scene midway through, but I always try to write my endings first. Cause then I, I know, like, 
I don't have that terror of just like not really knowing where my story is headed. Um, but I also don't have the kind of creative restriction that an outline can sometimes give you with a feature where, you know, you might think something works on an outline level, but maybe it's not totally the right creative decision, but because you've already written the outline, you're no longer thinking that way. And, and I've actually written, I've, I've done some studio projects where I delivered like a, a treatment, a very detailed treatment and then delivered a draft and then kind of had to rewrite the draft because the draft was too close to the treatment and it just didn't work quite as a script. So, so when I write on my own, I, I just avoid that. I write my endings first and then I try to see if I can write a script that earns them. Usually by the time I get there, I change it, but yeah. Do you do an outline just because I'm like writing tips down? I'm like, so let's write a script. <laughs> right? so, do you do an outline after, so you get the ending and then do you do the outline or then you just wing it and start doing no, it? No, no, I just wing it. I, I write the ending like, like, so in this, in this, in the case of, in the case of seance, I, I wrote that kind of last, last scene. And then I just kind of started like, you know, interior That's awesome. you know, d- dormitory bathroom. You don't do you know, like saving cat math where it's like, okay, the arc is here. And then these characters have to go here. Like, I just feel like that's too logical. And it throws me off sometimes when I'm trying to write. There's like, I've never, I've never even read those books. Like those save the cat books and all that stuff. I've never, I never studied screenwriting. Like when people talk about character arcs, I understand what they mean, which is in a good story, characters are transformed by the story and you want to see them grow and experience that, that journey. But I often think people are just saying words that they've just kind of learned somewhere and, and aren't really examining because why, why does any of that really matter to a good story? And I'm sure we can all think of offhand millions of films that are amazing that violate, you know, all those screenwriting rules. Um, so no, I, 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 I don't tend to write in like act structures or, or, you know, 10 minutes in there's my inciting incident. However, I do think that kind of outlining can be a good guideline to check yourself, to be kind of like, okay, that kind of three act, like, okay, by page 10, our inciting incident needs to happen. Second act, they're at their lowest point or whatever. You know, it's surprising how often that does work. And so sometimes I think it can be good to go in after the fact and kind of see like, okay, what's my, if, if I was going to try to think of this as a three act film, what are those acts? But I usually do that after I've written the movie, then I'm kind of like, okay, I guess this is the first act. This is the second act. And I, and I kind of, you know, we'll think of it that way, depending on the film. I mean, I think um, A Horrible Way to Die is a really difficult film, for example, to break down into acts or, or, or any kind of real uh, character analysis to a certain extent. But, um, but, you know, but that's like an experimental movie to a certain extent. And like with something like Seance, where I was trying to do something much more kind of straightforward and accessible, you know, then I did kind of like after the fact, look at it and was like, okay, I guess these are, these are my points. And, and so this script does kind of pass that test, but I, I, I can't work that way. I, that like the way you're describing Anana, like I just can't, I've never been able to do it. I know there are writers who can do it, but I've never been one of them. How long does it take you to write? Like how long did it take you to write this? How many days? Adam Wingard has a theory that if a script ever takes me longer than a month, I'm in real trouble. And there's a lot to support that. I tend to either write a script in like a month, for like two years. Um, and, and, and there's kind of nothing in between. And, and Seance was the like the one month script. Um, Your Next was notoriously, a, like I, I, notoriously, I guess, among the, the people who made it. Like, I mean, I, I didn't finish writing Your Next until uh, like November of 2010, but it was just like a one month thing I wrote in November and then we were shooting by February. Like that was like a really quick, like, just, but that was like a one night movie. It kind of had to be that way. Sans is a little bit more of a leisurely paced film. You know, it is a bit more of, you know, a slow uh, atmospheric horror film. So I wrote it in about a month. 
and then rewrote it, you know, like 20 sometimes, you know, but by the time Anana saw a draft. I have yeah. a question, so, actually. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. I have a question. <laughs> okay. Like, wait, this I have is a great. I'll, I, I'm sure I'll come up with some questions for you. No, with the script, just because like the movie, I feel like every like moment was like, okay, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? When do you write like those parts of the script? Like, do you know writing it? You're going to have like jump scares at certain points or like, are you like, okay, I'm already bored at this moment. I need to add something to excite the audience. Cause I feel like your scripts always are like, there's something happening every so often so that you're not like the audience isn't bored. It's yeah, always like point. something going on. Yeah. You know, look, if you work with like, like Blumhouse or Lionsgate, you know, they have a real, like, like a jump scare every seven minutes, you know, like they have like, like a mandate. Like yeah. What? They're like every seven minutes, you need to put one in here. Is that how it works? <laughs> I actually haven't, I shouldn't say Blumhouse. I just know like, like, like the Jason Blum, who I've talked to a number of times does really value jump scare places. Sure. Lionsgate actually do have a, like, like I remember uh, hanging uh, out with like Jason Constantine, uh, who's a great producer uh, when we were doing Blair Witch. And he was like, yeah, about every seven pages, there should be a scare. I'm like, yeah. And again, it's one of those rules that you hear it. And it's like, well, if I tried to write a script that way, it would be terrible. But then you kind of think about it and you're like, yeah, that's probably about right. Yeah. It's like a horror movie about every seven minutes, there should be a scare. Sure. If I can find a way to make that work, I will. Um, so, I mean, look, I, I try to make everything I, I write as like fun as possible within whatever kind of genre or genres um, I'm trying to work within. But, but what I, what I will say, Anana, is that um, I really don't, like I usually know my last scene and I know my first scene. I know my basic trajectory. I have it in my head, but, but I really do tend to write in a, like I finish a scene and then I'm like, okay, what would these characters do next? Like they, they, there's kind of this, like, like one scene just kind of blends into the other. Cause you just know what organically should follow. Like, so that, I, I tend to think that that's why writing an outline or a treatment can sometimes be harmful because it prevents you from being able to enjoy that creative process of kind of writing in a way. Well, it's, it's like when you're writing, you almost want to try to experience your script like a viewer would. And, 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 and working with Adam Wingard, like one of the weird things um, initially when we were going to go is Adam wouldn't even know what I was writing when I was writing. it. So he knew like we were doing a home invasion movie next, but he didn't know that it, I was like doing this like weird screwball comedy thing until I gave him your next. And the reason for that is that I wanted him to really hit it with fresh eyes. And then I kind of stayed out of the editing room until he had a good cut ready. So I could be hitting the movie with fresh eyes. And I could, we don't need that. And, and, and he could be, you know, and he had that reaction to the script. When I'm not working with a partner like that, you kind of have to try to be that partner. You have to kind of like, like as you're writing, you kind of have to try to see the movie as a viewer and be kind of like, what do I want to happen next? Like what, what's the smart thing that I wish these characters would do next? Mm-hmm. And like, I don't think anyone's going to say like seance is like, you know, this like brilliant intellectual film, but, but there is this like, kind of like, well, what, what as a horror fan would I like to see now? whether it's a familiar story development or whether it's a surprising one, you know, you just kind of feel that in the moment. I think, I think there are a lot of people who are, who are much better at that sort of thing than I am. You know, I, I think I have a weird process. Was seance written on spec in any sense of the word? Was it, was it something that, oh, yeah. you know, an opportunity came up and you're like, okay, I'm going to write a movie or is that a part of your, oh. just, just what you do creatively? Do you go in like most of us would go to an office job and say, you know what today I, I have to write every day, no matter what, oh. I'm just going to sit and write and flex that muscle and whatever I come up with. And then seance ended up being one of those things. No, no. Like, look, I, I like writers like Stephen King and Robert Cargill who are like, Every day I get up at 8 a.m. and I do my push-ups and I, I kiss my beautiful spouse and I write for nine hours <laughs> right. and then I go play with my beautiful kids. 
And I'm just like, fuck you. Like, go fuck yourself. Like, like I, I, I procrastinate until two in the morning, uh, trying, you know, various combinations of marijuana and caffeine. Um, and then, and then finally I realize it's two in the morning and I haven't written anything yet and I have to write something. And then I would, you know, work until like five and then I go to bed and my, my rest of my week is ruined. Um, no, I mean, I, I would say, look, I, I would say it's, it's, it's always been a tricky thing because, you know, when I was, when I, like, I never, I've never been kind of just the screenwriter on any project, except like I, in that I always kind of had a producerial role to some extent. And that kind of defined how I would spend my time a, a lot. Like I'd be doing like rewrites on like your next in costume up in like the production office, you know, just trying to like crank them out quickly. So, so, you know, so like, no, I, I don't have a healthy writing process and I don't ever like, I'm never like, Oh, here's a market. I'm going to write this on spec. I always just write my own original scripts because I want to write them and I want to see them made. And I think it's easy to kind of look at a movie like seance, which is working in a kind of established horror genre and say like, Oh, I was trying to like second guess what people want from horror, you know, like post hereditary or something, but uh, that's obviously not the case. I just love these movies and I love these characters and I wanted to do one. And my next film, whatever it is, will be very different. Yeah. And, it, and if I and if we ever are blessed enough to get to do a séance too, it'll be very different. So you know, that's that's I think the key is just to try to not repeat yourself uh, too much because I think if you repeat yourself too much, then I think you start to get into that like. I think I think if you start feeling less creatively inspired by the decisions you yourself are making, viewers will feel that. And so if I did another film that was exactly like séance, it would probably be kind of hacky. But fortunately, uh, no one is asking me to do that. <laughs> and Inanna, talk to us about your gateway into seance and what you felt about, you know, reading the script for the first time, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, I auditioned for my role. I feel like everyone else from like the start. And then I think I had like, how many call? I think I had a callback and then a session with Simon. But yeah, I didn't read the whole script until obviously I got before I met Simon, before my uh, callback with him, which was I think the third time, but I loved it. I was again, like, I, I love that it, it takes a lot. So I like have a short attention span. So for me to like write, read an entire script, like I need to be like really into it. So it kept me engaged the whole time. And that's one thing that I think um, I definitely look for when I'm like going to read a script. I want to make sure that I'm engaged and it's interesting and I love the character. So um, yeah, I had all that. What scene did you audition with? Was it the, it was the study hall scene, no? I mean, obviously I didn't punch Simon in the face. (laughs) (laughs) I think you did. I I think you did too. I think I saw you read maybe to the opening scene. Yeah, I yeah. I saw you. Thing. I feel like I saw you do the opening monologue, like the opening kind of Bloody Mary monologue, mm-hmm. and 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 then and then um, and and so I mean I I I should I mean we haven't ever really talked about this, but I originally was thinking Suki Waterhouse would play the Alice role um, oh. until I met Anana, and then I was like, oh, like it's one of those situations where like an actor tells you who a character is, sure. Cause, cause I was like, Oh, you know, Suki's so polished and, and, you know, she's like a model and this certain, you know, I, I, I picture her kind of being like the mean girl, mm-hmm. um, maybe, you know, the, 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 the kind of alpha of this like group or however you'd want to phrase that I, all these phrases are kind of trite, but you know what I mean? But I wasn't sure how like likable that would be or, or, or funny or enjoyable. Cause I, I think, I think character likability is one of the least understood things in film, which is like, we always talk about character likability as it applies to the real world, 
obviously Dan Stevens' character in The Guest is tremendously likable, but he's running around murdering people, which you would totally be opposed to in real life. In movies, you tend to imprint on characters who are just entertaining you and who are enjoyable. And I kind of hadn't found a way to make that character enjoyable. And then when I met Inanna and I, and I started, and I, I, I started watching her videos and realized she's a really good director, I started to kind of see like, oh, wow, okay, here's, here's not only an actor who has a kind of like funny energy that's like completely different than Suki's. And I can see like really being a fun dynamic, but also, um, you know, she just understands story. So I was kind of, you know, cause I, I should say that like the, the amount of trust I felt like I was asking for my cast on seance was like, I don't know how I earned it because I was ask, asking people to go a little over the top and be a little ridiculous sometimes. And particularly in terms of Anana's performance, I was just like, you're just going to have to trust me that this is like, that this is going to come across. Like, cause you know, I, I was asking you to be so unlikable in some yeah. scenes and just play it so unlikably, like, like, like no, like make no sympathetic choices. Just like, trust me. By the end of this film, people will, will enjoy you. But I do like that. I mean, I love those characters. So, so that was, that was, that really like, that was one moment for me where like, you know, as a director, especially I think when you're writing young female characters, which is a, an experience that I can't relate to directly, you really have to trust your cast to tell you who those people are. And, and when I met Inanna, I was just like, that's it. Inanna, talking, talking about that, how did you find your Alice? I mean, she is, for the first, most of the movie, she's a despisable person, right? She's a person we all grew up with in school that would, you know, torment us. How did you find her? Did you build your own backstory as to, like, what validated the way she was treating people yeah. and, and, and what she would be I like? Mean, so I feel like I get asked that and they're like, well, what horror movies did you? you watch to build her and I'm like I honestly it was just like real life experiences of getting like I was bullied in school so yeah. I was the other person on the other side so I think it's just taking people from like that bullied me and how how I perceive them but then again like I, I was like wait but she's not likable like how do I make it likable so I think it's just like the humor that we were that we gave her made her a little bit more likable I think and then towards the end like you realize that she was just kind of trying to protect her friends. So, yeah, I think I just... That was it. Yeah, that was it. We, we talked a lot about how protective Alice was of her group. Yeah. That she genuinely liked them. She genuinely yeah. liked her friends and was looking out for them. But mm -hmm. she just was a person who'd had a tough life. And this mm -hmm. was how she dealt with that. I, I think that's actually interesting. I love that, like, I mean, Anana's personality is very different from Alice, but there's yeah. a confidence. There's a confidence <laughs> yeah, that, like, fighting and I like doing like fight choreo and stuff like that. But I think, like, my mean girl side definitely comes from like me holding back from being bullied when I was little because I never would fight back. I would just be like, oh, one day I'm going to get her. Like, I just wouldn't do anything about it. So I think it's just like holding back that anger and then being able to let it go in different characters. Because I kind of had a similar character in After too. And yeah, it's just like gravitate towards these like bitchy kind of mean girl roles. And it's just me, I don't know, bringing out the, the part of me that I couldn't when I was younger. Yeah, catharsis. <laughs> On that note, Leo, with your question, man. Oh, wait, I want to add yeah, something to that yeah. because I, I just want to compliment Anana because sure. she's, she's, she's too, she's too modest about some of this stuff. Because what I like about Anana is she is an actor who does understand scenes as a director. So there's no ego about like, like, Oh, am I going to like appear foolish or unlikely? Cause she understands the purpose of the story and the scene. And she knows what the scene needs to move. Hmm. Like, like that's something that is actually pretty rare. Actors don't necessarily want to seem like total assholes in a movie, but when you find an actor who really understands story, and character and Anana, because Anana, that was the thing is, it was just like she understood what the scene needed. 
She understood what I needed to get the scene in motion and moving and done and would make those choices. And, and that's a really rare thing. Like she understood, she understood always what the goal of the scene was within the story. And that was her primary priority. There was never a like, do I look good? Do I like, 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 is it, you know, am I going to like come across as foolish, you know, which is, I think really important as an actor, but, I, but I, 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 you know, unfortunately I've, I've had the, you know, I've had, I've worked with a lot of great people in my career, but you know, you do, there definitely were points of the earliest part of my career where I was working with actors who did not want to risk appearing foolish. And I think, um, you know, I think the film's kind of suffered for that at times. The Boo Crew will be right back. You can run from Suspiria. You can hide from Suspiria. Who's there? Who's there? But you cannot escape Suspiria. Once you've seen Suspiria, you will never again feel safe in the dark. Rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent. In the yeah. third act, uh, we get to a place where we finally think we know what's going on, but yet it's accentuated with an ominous tone by the music by Sickerman. Can you talk about uh, working with him on incorporating this great score? Yeah, Sickerman is, is actually just one gentleman uh, named uh, Tobias, um, who's based in Berlin. And yeah, there is an ominous, like, like I wanted the, the movie to start from a certain perspective, um, the perspective of Carrie. Uh, visually, and we see it at the end, we're back in Carrie's visual perspective. So I, I wanted to bring the music back and the theme that's at the end is a variation on the theme that you hear at the beginning uh, when we first see Carrie lying on the ground dead. So, you know, very much the movie is actually from Carrie's visual perspective, not that anyone cares about stuff like this or will ever notice, but, but really it's kind of Carrie's eye is how we're seeing a lot of the scenes. Oh, I and, didn't um, that either. That's interesting. I, I, I don't think it really matters. I, no, but it's, I, a, it's one of those things you do... Up. Well, you know, when you're directing, like Kareem was really good at this, Kareem Hussein, our, our director of photography, you try to create like rules for yourself like that because it just, you kind of just need something to kind of guide your choices. So mm -hmm. I was always like, okay, we'll portray this movie as if kind of Carrie is here, but not really capable of doing anything, which we see is in fact kind of, I, I don't want to spoil him. Oh yeah, Sickerman, uh, great musician. Uh, I, honestly, uh, E.L. Katz, uh, my buddy who uh, directed Cheap Thrills and uh, the last season of Channel Zero yeah. in Winnipeg. Evan, his name is Evan. Evan was a big influence on Seance in that he took. He was the person who suggested Winnipeg, and he was the first person who introduced me to the music of Sickerman. He lent me an album by the hip hop artist Serengeti, who I who I've become since a, also a very big fan of. Um, and it was a collaboration. It's called Doctor My Own Patience, and it's just these really depressing rap songs with really weird beats. And I was like, who is this Sickerman DJ guy? And I looked him up and he's this German experimental artist who does a lot of German theater. And most of his music I discovered was um, almost like Max Richter or Philip Glass-esque, like classical, like minimalist classical compositions. So sort of like, um, you know, the stuff that like Peter Greenaway used in like his early work, like stuff that I really was like, whoa, this is exactly what Seance needs is, is I don't want to do the synth wave thing again that like you're next and the guest did. That's much more Adam's thing. Uh, although I love that music and I, I love all those artists, but you know, that's like Adam writes that kind of music. That's his vibe. I was like, my, I think with seance, I need it to feel more timeless, more classical. And we need a score that reflects that. 
So I basically just sent Tobias a Facebook message in this, like this very first time director way. I was just like, Hey, can you write a, like, can you write a score for a horror movie? It was like, yes, probably. Here are some tracks. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and those tracks ended up being like what's in the movie. Like, um, I, and it was wonderful to have those to listen to, you know, when we went into production and also so that I could kind of show, like, I could play those songs for Anana and Madison and, and, think, and people and say, this is the tone, you know? Yeah. I think that's one thing that Simon did that's different from like other directors is like, he actually gave us a, a playlist and that's so, so helpful because I feel like music guides so many things and like, you kind of can understand the tone that he's going for with a playlist as well. So I loved having that. Now I kind of want to, I want to have my own character playlist for every role I do from now on. Cause I think it helps a lot. I also put a lot more thought and effort into that in the future because people like that. Well, you know, you know where that came from is, is that's how Adam and I used to work is, is he would never, he, like he knew that I was such a neurotic writer when I was doing stuff like a horrible way to die and the guest and your next and stuff like that, that like, if he asked me like any questions about what I was writing, it would like kind of like shut me down at times. And I just like, wouldn't want to talk about it because I'd be like, I don't know if it's going to work. I don't know. Let's not talk about it yet. So what he would do is he would send me music and just say, Hey, for the guest, like, I want, I want to use this song. Are you writing a scene? Are you writing a movie that will fit this song? Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, oh, well, like now I am. Yeah. And, yeah. and especially with the guest, that process really guided that movie. It really guided the character of Michael Monroe. Adam is sending me music while I was writing the guest and being like, this is going to be like a synthwave movie, especially because that was at the time, a thing that not everyone was doing yet. In fact, I think survive, uh, like, I think we, survive like the guest is the first uh film that used their music and then they ended up doing the music for uh, stranger things so it became much more in the zeitgeist after uh you know films like uh your the guest and cold in july came out but at the time it felt very kind of just different and and so that really helped me understand the tone and the style of a project which i think is somewhat sometimes more important for actors yeah than people realize mm-hmm. like because because you, you kind of need to say like anana needs to be able to trust that like I'm not just going to do some totally like terrible low budget horror movie. That's going to embarrass her. And sicker man's score was a really good way to just say like, Hey, this isn't going to be the usual thing. Like, like, like it or hate it. And and I know some people aren't going to like seance and some people are, you know, this is, this is what we're doing something slightly different, you know? And, and, and that I think is, is really important for your cast to understand. And then plus, this is hard to describe a feeling, but a song can do it. Right. I had a question about something very interesting that I noticed throughout the film and it pertains to the music is the really unique way that it was weaponized and immersed into the story through the headphones of the characters, through the devices they were listening to in different ways like that. It was a really interesting way of introducing and and putting the score into the film and making it a real part of the sonic palette. Where did that idea come from? I think actually I ripped that off from a film called Diva, uh, which I think might be a French movie. There's like an opening where they're playing score and it's very bombastic. And then there's a sudden reveal that it's on the speaker of like a moped going through like Paris or something. I barely remember this film. I just remember thinking that was cool. So again, I really don't want to talk about sounds like I'm some kind of like smart filmmaker, <laughs> but the, the notion so that you were seeing yeah. it from the perspective of Carrie was similarly, I wanted the audience to feel like they were with, Suki's character like inside her head because she's kind of inside her head at the beginning Mm -hmm. and then you see when she's lying in bed with Helena we hear the music as if we were in the room with them not from Suki's perspective but then at the end of the movie where she's kind of retreated back into herself and and she's kind of just by herself again at least initially until until we're we're back totally in her head We're, we're back completely with Suki 
Suki's character because uh, her world is just her again. Um, so, so that was why I did that. Why, why, like initially we hear anything she's hearing as score. And then when she starts to open up as a human a bit more, we don't hear precisely what she's hearing from her perspective. But then at the end of the movie, we're back with just her oh, um, until, until, until that changes at the very end of the film. But I don't want to swear. Again, all this stuff is like nothing you'd ever expect anyone to like really register or pay attention to. But, but ideally, how does the red letter media phrase it like 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 you wouldn't notice this but your brain did yeah and, and it is like it's it is true. that subconscious like thing where like you know maybe just by hearing things from suki's perspective it's just another way to kind of connect the viewer to her character just a little bit because she doesn't really say anything or tell you anything about herself ever yeah and so you have to find little tricks to be like this is your protagonist you like her <laughs> um and and it's little identification things like that Working with Simon, what was the most challenging scene to shoot? Mm. Was it was it you tied to a chair for three? Days? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't think working with Simon was amazing. I think the most challenging scene is being like either outside in the cold, which thankfully oh, yeah. I didn't have like too long of a scene because it was like negative forty degrees outside. Well, and Anana managed to get like our cast like gifted nice coats, which is just like one of those <laughs> oh, Anana things that she just does. She's like. I'm going to see if I can get like a sponsor for us. Cause I'm cold. And like the next day we have like, like, just, like the most like amazing high fashion, like, like, you know, these like $10,000 nice. coats. Like, like these are all just women's coats. Like, yeah. Oh, no, I, mean, I didn't get you one. Damn it. I'm sorry. I bought one. Well, I bought one of my own. I've got one of my own now oh, of, of that, that exact brand. I'm not going to hype them up. They didn't send me anything for free, but, but they do make wonderful coats. Um, and yeah, it was, it was cool. Yeah. I think the freezing part, but definitely for me was, um, was the tied up scene. Cause it was like the last couple scenes that we had and it was late at night and I'm like passed out tied up on a chair. So I legit, like, if you look at some of the scenes, I think I'm actually sleeping. Like I'm like, I really am. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you if you've probably been asked this a million times, but me as an, if I was acting in this, I'd be freaked out to say it, but incantations and things like that, that, that stuff freaks me out. Did it freak you out at all to say the incantations that you have to say? I it honestly did because at first I thought they were real, but then after the fact, I think now that we're doing interviews, you said that it wasn't or. Uh, yeah. Oh, I just, I just came up with some stuff and like, yeah, I, wish Google you told, Translate. I, I wish you told me that. <laughs> so you didn't have to bless like, the set or anything. Yeah, like I was like, Oh my God, I'm like probably conjuring some spirits up. And then I had to go home to my apartment by myself. And I'm like, what if something comes through the window? Like I feel spirit. I don't know. So I definitely, while doing it was like, this is Latin. This has to be real. Like yeah. you didn't just make this up, but I didn't want to ask him. So. Right. Yeah, I totally, I definitely may. I mean, first of all, I actually, I, I would be hesitant. I'm not like a very superstitious person, but I would be hesitant to use a real incantation in like a film just because it might be disrespectful to someone somewhere knows, or something. Right? You know? yeah. So you, you're going to, yeah. you want to make up your own uh, re like religious incantations. And that was just kind of funny. Cause like, I, you know, Anana's character, Alice, like, you know, wouldn't have it memorized or necessarily like know how to say it. So the way we did that is I just kind of like, we just kind of wrote it on a piece of paper and just like had her like kind of say it. Um, similarly, like in the dance scene in the film, the way I directed Suki and that as I was just like, Suki, try to follow the other dancers. And then like, it turns and, out and more natural because I'm like, I as my character, I wouldn't know how to read Latin and like yeah. have it memorized. Like if you're doing this with your girlfriends, you're not gonna be like, hold on, let me memorize the words real quick and then we'll all do it as a group. 
So I think it was cool that we like did it practical and it was like, okay, the script, the, the actual incantation is beside me and I'm trying to read it as I, as she would. You get little realistic kind of funny moments like that. I, I hope. Also interesting visually was that each of the girls have to be in the school uniform, but each of their characters completely pops through that in their own unique way and style with the way they wear it and the way they have their hair different. Inanna, what was the process like of developing your character in that uniform visually and the way you guys carried themselves? How involved did you each get in building your own look and attitude? I was definitely involved into it because I feel like style, a character style has a lot to do with them as a person. It's the way you express yourself. I definitely wanted to have her stand out and like, what would she do or wear? So we actually had, remember those little things made and she like the stylist made mine from scratch. And my character was the only one that had like a little, what was that even called? Like a little, little like bolo tie or something. I don't yeah, know. I, just, yeah. I feel like it brought like a different vibe to her. And also I had my hair like a certain way. I think I was like, it needs to be the, like like this throughout the movie because then if she changes it, it would be weird if I have like straight hair one day and then like a whole other hairstyle another day. Um, so I think hairstyle and makeup and, and styling. Yeah, definitely. I like being hands on with it just to like really understand the character and why she would or how she would typically wear her hair or, or dress. When you cast someone like Anana in your film, you kind of just get out of her way when it comes to like styling her character. I, Anana did a lot of her like own makeup on set because like, yeah. she was she was const- honestly kind of better at it uh, at times. Um, and 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 like, like wait, can you just give me the eyeliner real quick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, like, like, and so, so, like, in terms of your costume, so Leslie Kavanaugh uh, designed the costumes for Seance, and I did wonderful work. And she she did like a lot of the Saw movies and stuff, and, and I, I loved working with her. I, I definitely want to work with her awesome. again. Yeah. yeah, she's really cool. I like, tried to get her. I tried to get her on another uh, my my BHS ninety four project, and she was booked. But she's, she, 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 she doesn't have an ego. She's not like it's going to be like this, and that's it. Like she totally gave room for like, what do you think? Like, what do you want to add to it? And like, what do you? But she had opinions. I mean, there was a time I walked in. I was like, I think this tie, and I've never had anyone ever do this to me. She turned to me and she just said, "No," and I went. <laughs> Oh, okay. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Like, like, but, but you hire department heads that you trust. And I thought that tie was a good idea. And Leslie told me it wasn't. And I'm sure she was right. But, but yeah, I remember, I just remember like, I like, like Anon and Leslie and, and like Roberta, our hair person, like they, they just worked together to kind of create Alice's look. And then I like, I remember at one point I just like walked back to the bottom of my office and you were kind of in that back dressing area and you were in your Alice stuff. And I was like, yep, that's it. Yep. That's perfect. <laughs> And I was like, okay, gotta gotta go worry about something else now. Like, like, and uh, and that was it. But but we did try. I, I will say that Leslie had a very specific idea of how to make everyone's outfits different mm-hmm. while still working within a school uniform. And and the like, the ways that Alice styles herself differently from like Lenora or Yvonne or Rosalind. You know, we're supposed to kind of tell you a little bit about who they were. And and I thought I thought she and the cast did wonderful jobs with that because I, I had almost no input on that. By the way. Because I don't understand that. Was Yvonne's dance sequence part of the initial script? Or was that something that came up when auditioning actors and finding out skills and talents of the girls? No. I, I, again, like, uh, it would be really good if I was like that smart. No, it was part of the script. I, and I had no idea what, how I was going to do that until I cast Stephanie Sai in that role. And she was a dancer. And, and, so, and she basically choreographed that entire scene herself. Oh, wow. Um, and and so I had that piece of music, that song "Friends of the Heroes" by the Eisler set. That's that's one of my favorite songs since the '90s. 
And I've always wanted to put it in a movie, but I didn't, I couldn't quite figure out where it'd work. It's not really Adam's style. You know, it's more, it's more my like kind of corny thing. Um, and so I, I knew I wanted specifically a dance sequence specifically to friends of the heroes by the Iser set, which I was pretty sure I could afford because not a lot of people are aware of it, but I didn't know what that was. I, I, I do martial arts, but I don't dance and I can't dance. And so I was just like, well, I'll just find a dance choreographer. Uh, and I did. Brenda Gorman, I think, uh, worked with Stephanie on that. And, but it was a weird thing where like, um, you know, I just gave them the song a couple of weeks out from shooting and, uh, had to like walk through Winnipeg's like, so Winnipeg is a Santa parade, uh, I'll, I'll get, <laughs> you know, I'll do the short version. I anyway, love Santa parade. It was really good. <laughs> oh, it was amazing. It was amazing. I had to get through the Santa parade to get to like where the dance studio, I had, oh, it was a night, it was a nightmare. Was like, I, had to, I had to cross the parade route anyway. <laughs> Um, and I was like super high, of course, because it was like my one day off. So I was just like smoking weed all day. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go see Stephanie's dance routine. I'm like freaking out. Like, you know, I'm going to have to do triage on this thing, whatever it is. And I just like sat down. I was high. Her and Brenda were in this room and Stephanie just like did basically what's in the film. And I was literally just like, okay, that part where you spin, can you find a way to do that three times in a row? Because that's what my scare is going to be. And and she was like, okay, like like this. And then she just did it again to the song. I was like, yeah, just like that. I was like, I'm really glad I cast you in this film see you on set. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, we filmed that at a, a theater at a, at a home for the deaf actually. And, um, the stage was incredibly loud because it's not a factor for yeah. the productions. And so like the, the sound in that scene was kind of initially a nightmare, but, um, but that was another thing with the headphones where I was like, well, we've established that with Camille's character, you know, you hear things from her perspective. I guess we'll do that with Yvonne's character. So we're really with her in this moment as well. I didn't choreograph that. That was really all Stephanie, Cy, and, and Brenda. And, and Stephanie is a really incredibly talented dancer. I mean, we did that scene really pretty quickly. Um, you know, the reason I have the coverage of that scene and as many shots as I do is because every single time she did it perfectly. I think she fell once and I was like horrified. <laughs> and, then, and then she was like, I'm fine. Um, but yeah, I, I'd always wanted to do something like that. I just didn't know how to achieve it. And then that is one of those indulgent first time director decisions that like, Maybe people like it, maybe they don't, but I, I, I feel like there's a reason for it. So I don't know what, I don't know what that is, but yeah. What about the school itself? Where was that? It was beautiful. All these woods and everything. It was, God, it was stunning. See, now that's the greatest compliment that you can pay uh, Anana and me on seance because there was no school. Uh, every school in Winnipeg told us to take a hike. Um, really? Our, uh, yeah. The, oh, the, wow. the school that you see in Seance is cobbled together from about eight different locations. Wow. The, do the dorm rooms are builds on a, in a storage facility that are designed by our brilliant production designer, Mars Fihiri, to match the upper hallway of an abandoned bank building, which is also where we filmed the study hall and the, and we turned that into our library. And then all the, the exteriors are mostly... That uh, well, so pretty, like the study hall. And I don't Did you guys build that out or was it like that? No, I mean, we, we like, Mar, like Marlena did a lot of stuff, like the paintings and stuff, but that room, like the wallpaper and everything, that was the way that was. I walked in there and I was like, yeah, we're putting this on camera. Whenever you see old wood like that and wallpaper and like yeah. really old fabric wallpaper like that, film it because they don't make that stuff anymore. And it always looks great. Like, so I like Park Chan Wook's movies look great because there's just like no bad way to light fabric wallpaper, but it's really expensive and really hard to find uh, that, that like old wallpaper anyway. But yeah, it was a bunch of different, like the, the exterior of the school is just a residential house that we found. Driving Are you around serious? Oh I, my God. That like old Tudor mansion looking place. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that is so cool. Residential home and, 
that's the residential home in the Winnipeg suburbs. And it was empty. Like, like we hung out in it, but like, there was no, there was no, in, there was nothing inside that building. Um, and in fact, it's funny. I don't know if you know this, Anana, but the uh, dark castle filmed orphan two there after we shot sands there, they, they, they like, they like took our locations and crew and like did it again. But oh like that God. house was a total discovery for seance. Like we were literally driving around. I was like, who owns that place? Can we show yeah, that place? And- crazy. It looks so good. I'm like, who actually lives there? That's scary. I could never live in a house like that. <laughs> so the story, the story is actually amazing. So if you've gone downstairs, uh, they like, so the, it was, it was like a, actually like totally kind of shitty on the inside. Uh, the, the previous owner was described to us by the realtor as a dot-com pharmaceutical millionaire, which I don't know what that means. He was a guy who made a lot of money selling pharmaceuticals online, <laughs> bought this like $3 million house in Winnipeg, which $3 million in Winnipeg is a big house. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then like destroyed it. He like tried to turn the basement into like a nightclub. So there were all these like colored lights on the walls that looked horrible. Yeah. There were all like these rainbow colored lights on the walls <laughs> that were like really ugly. And so what had happened is he lost the house, the bank foreclosed on it and his next door neighbor hated him so much and that they like and hated living next to him so much because he tried to turn this place kind of into a nightclub that they <laughs> bought the house just to control who became their neighbor. Whoa, that's and, a power so they move. Just, <laughs> so they were just letting it sit vacant until they found basically the right neighbor who had $3 million. And so we were like, Hey, we just want to make a horror movie in your front yard. And they're like, yeah, give us a couple thousand. We're cool. <laughs> like, like it's not making us any money right now. And and so it was a, but that was like a total, like, but I mean, yeah, like no, there's not a single school on camera in seance. It's like a geeky thing. But as soon as I saw like the dark castle logo at the beginning of this movie, it like it awoke so much in me, like watching like 13 ghosts, the remake and house on haunted hill and ghost ship and all. How did they get involved? Was that something that was a part of your nostalgia at all? Or was did that mean anything to you? Well, yeah, I mean, it did. I mean, I, I saw all those movies in theaters. Uh, I, I do want to say, uh, the reason you may have felt that nostalgia is because I specifically requested the dark castle logo from house on haunted Hill, their original <sighs> version of it, um, which they didn't actually have a HD uh, or, or 4k version of. Um, so they actually had to go scan the, I think dark castle, Kelly Gallagher at dark castle arranged this. They actually had to go scan from Warner's from the Warner's archive, a copy of house on haunted Hill to get a version of the logo to put on seance. Um, but that is the original dark castle logo because they're rebranding as like this indie horror company. But I was like, no, I want like the gargoyle. I want like, I want like the kind of cheesy, like early CG animation gargoyle. Like, cause I just remember seeing that in theaters before house on Hanel and being like, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Like, that's cool. <laughs> so no, I mean, I, orphans one of like a beloved film for me. So is Gothica. Like, um, I have, I have the, I have the house on Hanel Hill Blu-ray right here. You know, like, like, you know, I, I enjoy their work, but I mean, I kind of didn't honestly understand how seance could be a dark castle movie. You know, they make these like $40 million Joel silver horror movies that star Halle Berry. Um, And I was trying to do something very small and weird, kind of more like, you know, more like your next or the guest, you know, like smaller budget than the guest, but you know, like in that kind of indie film strangeness. Uh, And they were just like, you know, no, Joel silver's gone. That's what we want to do now. Like we want to be more of kind of an A24 like Blumhouse thing. And and we're going to be really hands off and let you, really make the movie you want to make. And, you know, they had some, they had some notes in the editing room, you know, some of which I took um, and some of which, you know, we butted heads on and, and, but ultimately they kind of let me do whatever I wanted to do, which I think is not the way it used to be at dark castle. It's a very different kind of company. Now they're kind of an indie. They're, they're, it's like the new kind of indie dark castle. So I'm, I'm like 
sincerely kind of honored to be like the first new dark castle release um and i hope i hope they keep going yeah um, oh man it'd be so great and i want them to keep that logo that you use too because that's the way to do it i think they will i mean it, i was totally like i expected to say hey i want the old logo and they'd be like no we have a logo yeah like, like normally companies are a little sensitive about their logos for example hanway films did not want me to use their old logo. Right. Um, <laughs> the dark, <laughs> well, the dark house, I think just didn't have one. I think they're like, Oh yeah, we should use the old one. Why not? Like, and, and so maybe that'll be it from now on. When we get to the violence in, in the movie, the close-up shots uh, of the violence, maybe think of films like Suspiria, for example, what were some of the movies that inspired the look and tone of the film, the framing of shots and the camera movements? Suspiria to an extent, though, I would say mostly to that, if, if, if I'm looking at Argento, the two films that really probably had more of an impact on Sands were Phenomena and Opera. Just um, not that I can imitate the look of those movies with a budget like Sands, um, but, but, you know, like those movies, the way they do punch in kind of disorientingly on close-ups, particularly like the bullet going through the, the people into the, you know, the eye and Opera, which is just, like, I, I don't know how he did that. Yeah. Like, I just, yeah, I don't right. understand how he timed like the squib on her head with the phone exploding and like, like stuff, you know, it's just like insane things that like really make you respect Argento as a director when you realize how difficult they must've been to stage and set up, you know, so it's little things like that. I mean, I knew we didn't have a lot of time, you know, Sans was a 22 day shoot, you know, we wouldn't be able to make it look like those films because we just didn't have time to, to get our camera setups that finessed. Um, I mean, I have no idea how long of a shoot phenomena was, but I'm, I'm sure it was longer than Sans. <laughs> And, um, and, and so probably by a, a factor of, of, of several times. And, and so, you know, so it was about trying to make visual choices that wouldn't make seance feel visually like low budget or cheap in any way. So actually, uh, uh, like it was, it was films like confessions, the Japanese film confessions was a big one. Um, and, uh, Shaolin soccer and, and there's like little movies that I could like kind of think of like, here's a shot that like I kind of do. And it'll be sort of different. And, and I love the way this looks. And this is, I think, the right feeling. But it also is like a little different than how movies are, are, are being kind of lensed currently. So, I um, mean, you know, and Kareem and I, um, you know, one thing uh, Anana and I talked about a lot was like lenses. Because um, Anana is very interested in lenses. And, and, and this was a lens movie. Uh, I, actually, you know what? I think, oh, here it is. Wait. I feel like that's like my director director side of trying to learn things. I'm like, sure. what? Is this ha- what, what is it so this, on? Is, Why? this is a little list with velcro that kareem made for me like a mom like like sending their kid to school oh with like God. his address oh, and his clothing yeah this is See, a list laminated. of our lenses it's <laughs> laminated <laughs> and it has velcro <laughs> in all our lenses so, so that when we were shooting on seance i could like and we were setting up the next shot i could say i think we need the 40 and oh, kareem would be like God. i'm thinking the 50 and then we'd like try it, you know, but, but I always remembered like, cause we had a lot of old lenses. We, you know, we were shooting anamorphic on these old Kawa, all these old refurbished Kawa lenses. Um, and we were actually literally using, um, like in the final scene in the library storage room that Anana, um, and Suki are in, um, you know, we specifically were using a lens that was actually used, uh, to make easy rider, this weird old lens that Kareem bought from, uh, Mumbai actually, but it was actually literally used to film easy rider. So seance has the lens from easy rider that is so amazing (laughs) but that lens has mold in it that's what's cool about that particular lens is it was stored improperly in india and it grew molded it's a spherical lens so it doesn't give you the same visual distortion as anamorphic normally but this particular lens has been stored so improperly that it it has started to get a little messed up 
And so, so we were able to make it match our anamorphic look. And it's, it's just like tricks like that, just to make things look kind of different. Also, actors tend to look very beautiful and anamorphic if you put them just to one side of the lens. Yeah. So wow. So the mold actually has a quality yeah. that infects the there's, lens. There's mold yeah. in, its me- in its mechanics. And so yeah. if you look through, so normally you would look at a lens like that and be like, let's not use this lens. But on seance, I was like, no one is telling us to shoot this at like 8K or anything. You know, we can shoot this kind of however we want. Like, like my financiers have given me carte blanche to just do a good job. And so no one is saying don't use a crazy fucked up old lens. So I will. And, and that'll be ultimately what sets this film apart from, you know, just the normal kind of like smaller horror movies, I hope. All right, you guys. Well, we're getting the wrap up signal from the publicity uh, company. So unfortunately, we have to let you guys go. We could probably talk to you for another two hours, I think. <laughs> you guys are the best. Yeah, I feel bad. I, mean, I, I talk too much. And on a, no, in God. The next interview, I'll let learning. you talk more. This, this podcast was like a learning experience for me. It's fascinating. I, I love <laughs> it, you guys. <laughs> Let's do it again soon. And again, congratulations on this amazing movie. And thank you so much for taking the time to yes. talk with us today. Yes. We really appreciate yes. it. Yeah. Thank, yeah. You. thank you. All right, you guys. Talk later. Thanks. Right. That was the Boot Crew Podcast, episode 232. Special thanks to our guests, Simon Barrett and Inanna Sarkis. The time of release, their new film, Seance, is in theaters on demand and digital now. Production tracks provided by Powerman 5000. Till next time, it is the Boot Crew saying, sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shands and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shands, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shands. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the bloody disgusting Podcast Network. Bye. A bloody disgusting podcast network. Home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews. SCP archives. Weekly full cast storytelling. The horror queers. Genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective. And creepy. For disturbing and terrifying creepypastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.